welcome to the June edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, the podcast in which we discuss as broadly as we can the goings on at Metro Cinema. This month's going to be a little bit different though because uh, Metro will be closed for the final week or so of June as it undergoes its annual Dark Week maintenance project, and I'll be talking to facilities manager Alan Mulholland about that a little later on. Uh, The reason the episode is a bit different, though, is because my guests and I will be discussing some of our favourite of Metro's offerings over the past year, since, since roughly since last Dark Week. I think it changes a little bit. But before I forget... Let's introduce ourselves because we usually get about half an hour in before I uh, yeah. realise that hasn't been done. My name is Owen Armstrong. I'm the projectionist at Metro Cinema and I also host the monthly Metro Cinema movie trivia at the Tavern on White. To my left... Uh, I'm Talisha. I'm a house manager and I work in the communications office at Metro. Uh, and I'm Nick, a long-time listener, first-time host. <laughs> uh, I'm also a projectionist at Metro and I also host the monthly movie trivia at the Tavern on White, and I used to be the assistant operations manager at Metro until I went back to school for cool stuff. For cool stuff, <laughs> which is actually a subject. <laughs> I'm Heather. I am the vice president of the Metro board, and I'm the chair of the programming committee, and uh, Talisha and I have been on the same trivia team a few times, and uh, we've got like third or fourth place. <laughs> yeah. Third is really first place now, because we already That's know right. who first and second are going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a bit of a dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Will, I scoop corn. Yep. Uh, you do do other things as well. That's true. They're barely worth mentioning. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, like I said, we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna talk about a, a couple things that we've got coming in June. But because we have a limited schedule because of maintenance, we're gonna talk about some of the things that we liked over the past year. So going back into 2018 and uh, including this year. And as usual, we're just gonna start anywhere. Now, there's a few films that I know a few of us have picked out that more than one of us have seen. So let's Should we go some- chronologically. Do, did you arrange it chronologically? I did. Oh, no. <laughs> In that case, you can you can pick the first one. Okay. The first one I want to talk about is First Reformed. Okay. Um, starring Ethan Hawke, written and directed by Paul Schrader. And it's essentially about um, Ethan Hawke plays a, a priest who is um, approached by one of his parishioners because her husband has become convinced that the world will be inhabitable in the near future. And so he is too scared to have a child with her. It won't be inhabitable. Uninhabitable. Yes. Uninhabitable. Is that not what I said? You said inhabitable. <laughs> uninhabitable. Guys, right. watch out. It's soon going to be inhabitable. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but really brilliant performance from Ethan Hawke and like a really, really um, nerve-wracking script from Paul Schrader who kind of faces the like anxiety of the world in a really profound way, I found. Was it uh, that was a an Oscar nominated for Paul Schrader, wasn't it? Uh, or was it just, was it just best just film? original screen screenplay, yeah. which I think I mentioned on the podcast before. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. in my mind, it's that is like the bone that they throw to movies that are too cool for the Oscars. Yeah. So like, <laughs> the actual good ones. Yeah. 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 Um, I really loved First Reformed, and I was lucky enough to get to see Paul Schrader talk about it in Montreal last wow. fall. Uh, uh, oh, I'm afraid I'm like remembering this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was part of the Festival de Nouveau Cinema in Montreal. And, you know, he talked a lot about like his influences for this film are quite obvious and he doesn't shy away from it. When, you know, back when he was doing a lot of um, film criti- criticism, he wrote a book on transcendental cinema, which kind of uh, covers Bresson, Bergman and uh, uh, Dreyer. 
and uh, the, their, their particular style of filmmaking. And this movie was his attempt to finally make his own version of a transcendental film. And he's taken elements from all of those guys. So the, the premise is modeled a lot on Bergman's Winter Light. And the end uh, is reminiscent of Dreyer's Ordette. And the, of course, the structure where you have this priest who is um, writing in these journals is kind of influenced by Diary of a Country Priest. And like for me, as someone who's a fan of those types of movies, it didn't hurt it that it was influenced by them because you've never seen that kind of storytelling in a contemporary setting. And just even like the way it's filmed, the pacing of it, and um, like it, it, do, it doesn't feel derivative because it's, 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 there's just not movies being made like that anymore. No, it was also, uh, I think, if, if I remember correctly, was it, was it shot in 4.3 as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was. Um, which is like immediately just a sort of very jarring thing to see when you're sitting in a cinema screen uh, in an auditorium because it's not, it's not a, um, you know, a, a practice which is very common these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Ethan Hawke was absolutely fantastic and it. it was an amazing turn. It's unfortunate that he's kind of become, in the last few years, probably synonymous for a generation with things like the Link Letter films the before sunset sunrise and whatever else is and he has this uh unusual kind of like unfulfilled um density as an actor i think this was a real you know a really sort of good opportunity for him to show off a little bit and people like that sometimes as they this maybe is a little bit harsh but as they grow older they tend to get more of those roles that they can flesh out and kind of yeah for sure like bring a lot to so i think you might see him become a really great actor well he's in uh he's He's gonna be in Corriere's next film i think right with uh, Mm -hmm. juliette binoche as well Okay. There you go. There you go. Hot, um, hot news. Hot, hot <laughs> off the bricks. <laughs> I want to say too that, like, even though it's it's um, kind of inspired by all of these um, movies that I think a lot of people would see as very kind of slow and meditative, it is still a Paul Schrader movie, so it's actually quite thrilling. I was I was on the edge of my seat the whole time I was watching it. Definitely. I mean, there's an element of eco terrorism in, in there as well, and kind of this question of what what is this man going to do with this problem he has um, and so that definitely holds it and I, I must admit I haven't seen any of the films you just mentioned but I think as well if I can imagine it's probably a crisis of faith that comes almost internally yeah. like existentially whereas this is a real problem that he's being faced with and kind of as he you know the film is largely him looking at facts and um, information about the way the earth is changing and realizing that, that he's right that it is not going to be a good future and how can how can we have faith when knowing that we've completely destroyed our entire world is kind of a really profound thing to deal with. And well, it's so relevant. Yeah. I think it, there was also, an, he was having an existential crisis on top of that. <laughs> yeah, so. definitely. Um, but yeah, it was probably my favorite film of last year. And I remember, because um, that, that idea of the inability to cope with that fear um, really shook me. And by after watching it, I was kind of left stunned in silence and just kind of, yeah, totally, you know. So you saw If Bill Street Could Talk, which is the follow-up for, uh, from Barry Jenkins to Moonlight. Yes. Uh, based on the James Baldwin novel of the same name. True. And uh, features a bunch of actors in a breakout role. Uh, what did you make of it? Few films kind of evoke a feeling simply through color, mm-hmm. but the color palette in Beale Street just, it's so warm and like, inviting and again the it it's all in service of of the relationship between 
the main two protagonists and like the love they feel for one another. And as I, I think I mentioned previously, um, it's just such a, a beautiful and loving relationship in a way that's rarely seen on film. It's like complete and whole and without any hesitation or regret or anything. But what the film is ultimately about, sadly, is not that relationship. It's about the sy- systemic racism that is eventually going to tear them apart. Uh, Moonlight was another film that used its color palette mm-hmm. um, extremely effectively. Yeah. It's almost like it's his own character. Yeah, and, and it's, it's neat to see that this is a completely different tone. Yeah. Whereas Moonlight is very kind of light and, and cold almost. This is so warm. I, yeah. The uh, the score by Nicholas Bertel, who also scored the Moonlight, mm-hmm. is another piece of incredible music that it just... Um, again, the, this film takes place, I believe, in the, in the 60s, and it's, so it's a bit of a period piece, but um, the score just kind of tran- transports you back there. And I think it's the, the early 70s. The early 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, but it's, it's just a beautiful piece of music all the way through, and I've been listening to it almost constantly since I've seen the film, and without, you know, without watching it, it's just beautiful to listen to on its own. So he, once again, has struck brilliance, and like, Barry Jenkins and him together is proving to be an amazing combo, and so I hope I hope their next film uh, continues the trend. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Alan Mulholland, who is our facilities manager at Metro Cinema, also uh, is the curator of Night Gallery, which has been going for a long time now. But first off, we're going to talk about something which happens at the end of June. It's called Dark Week, and I've uh, alluded to it earlier on, but it is uh, where we shut down for about 10 days to perform some sort of maintenance, usually update the building in some way. So uh, this is going to be at the end of June. What have we got in store for Dark Week this time around? No, in the past we've had, I've got some amazing pictures of when we installed the new, uh, the new screen. So usually something pretty drastic, but what's going on this time around? Uh, this year, Owen, uh, we are going to be focusing on increasing our accessibility into the building. So okay. uh, my main project this year is to build a universal washroom. So basically a fully wheelchair accessible washroom that is separate from the current men's and women's washrooms that are currently gender neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will be regendering those two washrooms and uh, and the, the third one will be completely gender neutral. It'll also be family friendly. There'll be a changing table in there. And uh, it's something we've been working on uh, for quite some time. Yeah. And I've been struggling to find a way to fit it into this uh, charmingly uh, uh, convoluted building um, but I think I've come up with a plan that'll work so we're just waiting on permits and uh, uh, funding funding anyone who would like to donate to Metro Cinema at this point uh, that funding will go to help us in this project so that will be project one and at the same time I will be laying the groundwork for a wheelchair lift um, which again has been challenging because of the nature of this building. So I've been trying to find a way to uh, install this equipment uh, without destroying the beauty of the building. Um, so uh, to make it a win-win for everyone, we have a, a vintage curved staircase in our front lobby that uh, 
leads directly into the auditorium and uh, the original proposal was to destroy that and um, uh, put in a vertical lift and um, I've been looking into our options and I've found um, what I hope will be a much better solution which will preserve that staircase um, and again we could sure use a little bit of extra money to help pay for that because it's going to be very expensive. We should reiterate there is no time limit on that although this is happening at the end of June you can donate any time you like and uh, it's always welcome. You absolutely may. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll always, it all, it all goes to pay the bills in the end. So. Remember the Metro is a non-profit organization so everything, a lot of what people do here but you know they, they donate mostly their time to people that work here so it's, uh, it's a labor of love. Yes, but it absolutely that is. That does cost money. So, um, you know, visit metrocinema.org and yes. uh, follow the donate tab. Is there one? Uh, yes, there is, <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, uh, if there isn't, there should be, and there will be. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, we'll be hopefully putting up more details, and we'll be talking about that certainly at the September launch. Um, so, uh, stay tuned. In June, you're also showing Vegas in Space as part of Night Gallery. This is a, a film by Rollo, uh, Philip R. Ford, who is a member of Sluts A Go-Go, yep. the honorary straight member of Sluts A Go-Go. Uh, and Vegas in Space is a film that stars mostly Sluts A Go-Go, I think. Yep. Tell us about that. I mean, actually, the description of the film is just, it's brief, but it's fantastic. The plot concerns three male space travelers who must become women in order to complete a secret mission on the all-female planet Clitoris. Correct. It is, uh, it is a wild and much-storied film. It came out of the San Francisco uh, drag scene, which is absolutely fabulous, I can tell you. And it's fascinating uh, beyond the film itself in that it was very much a labor of love by Doris Fish. So uh, Phil Parford, of, of course, is the one most mentioned as the director. But Doris Fish wrote and produced this film. Much of it was filmed in her apartment uh, in San Francisco. And uh, when you see the film, it's amazing what they managed to fit in there. She bought the sets, she designed the costumes, she made the costumes, put all of her hard-earned cash, and uh, we'll be talking about how she earned much of that cash at the film itself. For a period of eight years, the principal filming was done in 18 months but it took them eight years to raise the money to finish this film and, and get it out into theaters. The result is uh, hilarious. I mean, they, they knew exactly what they were shooting for it. They made a cult film. Right? Yeah. So don't expect uh, high art. Although I suppose it depends on how you define that. But uh, it is, uh, It's high it's, camp. It's high for camp sure. for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's from Troma. So that might give you some indication as to what it is you're walking into. Uh, Troma is, of course, famous for uh, producing and distributing a lot of... Well, I think the... Uh, so the slogan which they adopted in 2014 was 40 years of disrupting media. That's what Lloyd Kaufman's all about. In fact, we got the call from Lloyd himself. Really? Yes. To, Fantastic. Uh, to confirm that we were able... This, this will actually be, as far as I can determine, uh, we are the first to have Canadian rights to this film so this will be the first Canadian theatrical screening of this film ever wow. since 1991 since 91 so, yeah 
and it just passed its uh, 25th anniversary, which was a huge event in um, San Francisco, uh, which I very much wish I could have seen. Unfortunately, uh, Doris Fish passed away quite some time ago, but uh, they had some of the surviving cast members there, as well as the fabulous Peaches Christ, mm -hmm. uh, who I was lucky enough to see with Elvira in uh, 2009 in San Francisco at one of their midnight mass screenings, which was certainly an impetus to create Night Gallery. Um, seeing what they did there, you know, leaves me in the dust, but, uh, you know, it, it was certainly something to strive for. Uh, Troma also filmed that performance, so there was an hour and a half pre-show, so we will be showing selected musical numbers from that performance in the auditorium and this will be in the auditorium anyone who's not sure since that is of course uh, pride weekend or whatever mm -hmm. will pass for pride this year that uh, we will be glamorizing the auditorium in uh, celebration of pride and of this film because this film is presented in full screen glamorama so uh, it should be quite a time fantastic all right so that is on saturday june 15th at midnight yep. um make sure you get here early to enjoy the Glamorama in its full throttle. Yep. And uh, yeah, expect madness. Expect the unexpected. All right, Alan, thank you very much for coming in. All right, you're welcome, Owen. Talked about first reform a little bit. Uh, uh, other than that, Heather, which was your favourite last year, what else uh, particularly uh, uh, piqued your interest? Well, we talked about the favourite a lot on the podcast before, but that was one of my favourites last year. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, apologies for having discussed it in the last podcast. Uh, we are really showing it this time. The 17th oh, yeah. at, uh, at 7 o'clock and the 15th yeah okay so we have already talked about it so let's not let's not go too deeply into that but we are showing it again so please come yeah we're not lying <laughs> <laughs> i didn't really come with like a, a list of things to to talk about but i we you know we when we were screening burning we kind of uh talked about it a bit but no one mm -hmm. had seen it yet and um it's definitely one that i kind of keep coming back to and thinking about more this is the lee cheng dong film um and it it was something that it took me some time to really process. I think the previous films I'd seen by Lee Chang Dong, they come from a woman's perspective and um, they're very, like I, I've said this before, he's kind of like a bit more of a humane Lars von Trier or something where he's putting <laughs> his characters in these very uncomfortable situations. The hard part about Burning for me was that ultimately the main character is not He's, he's more he's not the hero and he's not even quite an anti-hero like I think it it takes you a while after you come away to realize that the person you were watching was not the person you should have been rooting for and I think for me it parallels uh, I think a lot of online culture and masculinity in online culture and, and men who see themselves as the hero of their story when they're actually kind of doing awful things I, yeah I actually thought it was really good in retrospect but because you spend so much time. It's a long movie. And you spend it with a character that is increasingly unlikable. That it it didn't um, it didn't resonate with me immediately. I remember when I watched it for the first time. I guess my I didn't think Lee Chang Dong was maybe like intentionally doing that. It felt like it was like oh this is just like a weird film that maybe isn't very good in terms of its representation and whatnot. But yeah. I think it's interesting to hear that your take that that's like an intentional choice and that that's sort of like you know, a commentary on the sort of uh, contemporary troubles of like masculinity and this 
you know, like simple delusion that people have that they are always in the right despite their glaring flaws. Yeah, well, I mean, he's definitely the villain by the end. And when you go back and look at kind of what happens throughout the movie and kind of the imaginary relationship he's created with this woman and the way he, you know, you can, it's left ambiguous, so you can really interpret things as he experiences he's seeing them or you can kind of look back and go like hey wait a second the guy who's supposedly this douchebag that he is in opposition to might have been a totally fine person yeah. and mm. yeah had anybody read the uh read the the murakami uh, short story that basically he, he was criticized he has been criticized for uh misogyny right so i mean it would well, be It'd be interesting if, if this material was taken and then given that spin. Reinterpreted, yeah. yeah. I think in addition to the masculinity, I mean, I also read it a bit as just a crisis of, of youth, kind of not knowing what to do or having a path because he sees this guy who's really successful and he's completely ineffectual and, like, you know, doesn't have a lot going for him. So he kind of almost creates this story so that he, he can feel like he's a part of something or be doing something with his life because before that it feels like he's completely lost and almost... You know, and like non-existent, and I, I, I yeah, he's a writer is, who like doesn't yeah, actually have a story to yeah. tell. and I, I'm this is this is a stretch, and I, I, this is maybe drawing a bit too much, but I know in Japan that they're having a huge problem with you know, a, you know, reclusive males who aren't experiencing the world or getting out, and I'm, I don't know if it's the same in Korea, but mm-hmm. it seems like a like a common thread to have to have sort of a, a lack of vision or goals for for youth these days. I also agree that, I mean, I'm going to say this, that I think Lee Chang Dong's other films, that all that I have seen have pretty much been masterpieces from yeah. from the moment go to the end credits just wow, blew me away and this left me feeling kind of mild after and right. even to this point, even after thinking and discussing, I'm still kind of like, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm glad I watched it, but I don't have any burning desire to watch it. <laughs> it does look great, though. Like, it's yeah, one of the no, prettiest yes. films, I'd mm-hmm. say. Yeah, last year. yeah. When I watch it, I just wondered how much he took from the Murakami short mm-hmm. and how much he made his own. Because it did feel, for me, I've read other Murakami stuff, and it does still have a lot of those elements mm-hmm. of just, you know, this male character that's alienated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the. Trying the f- to solve some sort of mystery, but there may not even be a mystery. Yeah. And then the female character, she's there and then she's mm-hmm. not. And she's really just for his development almost mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like she never yeah. quite get, gets her own space to exist in this compared to other <laughs> films that he's, Lee Cheng Dong's made. Right? I suppose, I mean, it's, it's tenuous as hell, but another uh, filmmaker who I often am um, kind of just completely captivated by the sort of the, the mastery of his of his craft is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson Phantom Thread uh, was another one that I thought was a brilliant film from last year mm-hmm. um, about you know it seemed to focus very heavily on, on male struggle as his films often do really there's not much in the way of uh, a female perspective in those films I don't know how uh, how far I would go into, into completely disregarding his work because of that because there are so many elements of it that I really enjoy he often shows us these monsters these mm-hmm. despicable creatures like Daniel Lewis was you know just again this totally formidable ugly horrible thing providing us with some of the best insults yes <laughs> of the whole of Amazing. cinema for Amazing. the last decade you know while the tea has left the room <laughs> the interruption stays here and the uh, quite frankly I'm admiring my own gallantry <laughs> for eating this the way that you've prepared it which is something I've always wanted to say to somebody in a restaurant, but I probably not not the right course. Probably, it's never the right time. <laughs> I mean, I think like a lot of cinema has been 
like men dealing with the terrible aspects of themselves. Yes, <laughs> like I think that's yeah, like for a sure. Very it's it's not exactly uh, mm-hmm. it's not exactly unfamiliar territory. Yeah, but I'm not against it, but we've no. seen it. Yeah. So I'm sat opposite Ramnik Tung, um, who uh, had hosted uh, Boom Bap Cinema, which is for the first four months of the year, if I'm yes, correct in saying that. first four months, yeah. Uh, and you initially covered the 80s, and I know that you wanted to bring back the series for a second instalment, and I know that one of those films is also going to be Boys in the Hood. Yes, if we did have a second season, it would have been the second film, right after House Party. But something happened in between now and then. Yeah, tragedy struck. John Singleton passed away, only 51 years old. Yeah. So for a special screening on the 23rd Yeah, I, I pitched it to the programmer that we should screen this film. I w- initially wanted to do two films because his reputation is always synonymous with Boys in the Hood. Yeah. And he did peak early, but he has another solid film in Higher Learning. And yes. I would love for people to see that. Michael Rappaport has like a white supremacist. He's fantastic in that movie. And it's just such a great film, but it gets overlooked. Poetic Justice is yeah. okay. Boys in the Hood will always have that, that's, that sort of place as a kind of... Uh, as an archetypal uh, hood movie, and definitely, you know, as a, as a hip hop film as well, it's it's a, it's a big film for a lot of people, very generational. It's kind of autobiographical too, because right? he lived that. That's something that he escaped. That's where he was from. Yeah. So it's not something artificial, like a, like a white guy in the '70s making a black exploitation film about black culture. Like you don't understand it. But John Singleton understood where it was coming from, like where he showed Ice Cube the script. Ice Cube's like, this is my life. So that's why I think that film had such impact that it was so genuine. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, um, so coming back for it, you're gonna. This is this is gonna be a special one-off screen. So it's it's a it's a, a sort of a mixture of a tribute to John Singleton and also uh, a callback to Boom Bap as well. So you're kind of presenting it. Yes, uh, I did pitch it as a one-off screening, but uh, I think the programmer suggested that we might have a second season. So you're gonna try and show it again? No, I wouldn't. No, <laughs> I'm not gonna do it. Uh, so then we would just jump from House Party to possibly New Jack City. Okay. Well, I suppose it's a blessing because you get to bring in more stuff as well. But True. And uh, Boys in the Hood is probably like the centerpiece of the series. That's that's the masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. That I think if you'd uh, if you proposed if we you know proposed Boom Bap to begin with without having said anything, that would be probably the one that I think people would expect to see. Boys, yeah. Yeah. I had boys. people asking. So what are you gonna screen next, boys? I'm like, no, House Party. Yeah. <laughs> House Party is a great one too as well, man. We have to go chronologically. I was thinking, man, House Party, if we screen one and two, Pajama Jam. Double feature, Pajama Jam. You know, what were the last few years of really important films for you? From the past, like, decade? Yeah. Dope. Dope was good. Dope was a uh, good film. That was uh, a love letter to 90s hip-hop. Yeah. Um, Hustle and Flow, I think, was like the first and possibly only great southern hip-hop film oscar winning uh, uh track yeah that, it's well, hard it? out here yeah, for a pimp yeah. you played it during film trivia that's correct um fantastic performance from uh, terrence howard mm-hmm. i think he was nominated for an oscar eight mile so inspiring yeah there's a recent bollywood movie about hip-hop in bollywood and it was uh basically the equivalent of eight mile it was called gully boy okay that was um i wouldn't say it was fascinating i didn't really care for the hip-hop in it mm-hmm but I did find the film inspirational and it does show you the power of hip-hop, something that just developed in the South Bronx now all of a sudden is in this country on the other side of the world with a billion people. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, hip-hop also penetrated my beloved Bhangra music and I love, love hip-hop, but Bhangra music should remain Bhangra music. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple I would definitely throw in there in uh, Blind Spotting I thought was fantastic. Do you think any films within the... Ta- past 10 years hip-hop inspired films are integral to the culture like boys is 
Yeah. It, it's like one of the elements when it comes to culture. It's something, it's like a rite of passage when you're getting into hip hop. I think the way that we, that we digest cinema has changed since the 90s. And I think that it, it doesn't ha- doesn't happen in the same way because everything's accessible. The way that things are disseminated. Remember when when a film came out in the cinema, you'd have to wait for it to be out of the cinema for a long time before you were able to watch it again. There was that and anticipation. Afterwards, that too, because it would always be out when you go to Blockbuster. All yeah, the tapes were gone. Exactly. Yeah. There was that. There was that anticipation. It's like waiting sure. for photographs. You know, I'm just so reminded it's, of it's, when I got uh, Mario Brothers three from Seven Eleven. Went there every day and then yeah. finally got it. Yeah. yeah, it's that you know, and now you don't you have that's to the wait. Reason or the films just, or is I don't, it just I the result of hip hop's regression in a way? I think if a film like you know, uh, Sorry to Bother You or something like that was to come out, I mean, Sorry to Bother You's not really a hip hop film, but but there's there's definitely very sort of like bombastic elements like that yeah, in and it. Yeah, it's directed by a, a you know, MC. I guess a film like Blind Spotting, they're so immediate. And the way that you almost have, you know, you know enough about them before they come out. Whereas I remember watching, you know, go, go and watch a film and nothing about them at all. Um, and that's just not the way that we interpret art these days. We're much more informed. You is know. Blind Spotting, do you consider it a great film? Because I think the last great hip hop film. I think is it's an underrated film. Underrated? Yeah. I think the last great hip hop film is Hustle and Flow. It, it coincided with the explosion of the South. Like that yeah. year, T.I., Slim Thug, Paul Wall, Chameleon Air, they were all coming to prominence. And they had this film. It was, in a way, it is to Southern hip hop what Saturday Night Fever is to disco. Yeah. And it was, it wasn't a coming of age film like a lot of hip hop films are. It, it it was a it was like ten. It was it was a middle aged story where this guy's having a midlife crisis and he looks towards hip hop to get that life that he wanted. Yeah. Again, I don't even think it's a film made with that kind of intention in mind. Honestly, blind spotting? No. Okay. I think it's a it's a film that will be really, really highly regarded by a really small number of people, and I'll eventually that will that will that will work in its favour. But you know, it is a film that it's a bit like clipping draws on a lot of those those elements, but it's 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 uh, it's extremely knowing, which is again not inherent with films that are compl- like a, a film like Boys in the Hood. I wouldn't say is a knowing film. It's a real film. It feels like it's 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 heartfelt. It's emotion in it. You know, same with some of that hustle and flow. It's telling you a story, and it's wholehearted. It's it's not an analysis of something necessarily. It's not like it's not self-reflexive. It's not academic. Whereas a film like Blind Spotting is highly academic. The guy who wrote that is a smart dude, and he's written it in in, in layers. And there's not many of those. Well, it's nice that, uh, you know, as a sort of interim, perhaps, before the next instalment of the series, that, you know, you can have that. It's a great step into the 90s. Yeah, it is. I think. Definitely. You know, I mean, yes, perhaps there are other films that we could have shown, but I mean, of all of his films, it really is the best one. It is, yeah. That's going to be on uh, June 23rd. Do you know what time it is? Seven. Seven o'clock, okay. Which actually is going to be, I think, either the last or the second to last film that we show before we close down for Dark Week. Ramnik, thanks for coming in, man. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again down the road. Most definitely. Beautiful. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> what else? What else grabs you from last year? Uh, I enjoyed uh, Ashes: The Purest White. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great film. It's the first film by Gia Janke. That guy. Yeah. It's the first film by his that I'd seen, and I know that a lot of people have commented on this being sort of a culmination of a lot of his previous styles. So probably probably a horrible place to start. I apologize, everyone. I have not seen it yet, but I've seen a few of his other films, so I'm very curious. Right. Well, well, we discussed it sort of 
briefly before, but you know, it's the f- it's one of the first films that's really kind of like broken uh, Western market, I think. Yes. Um, so it's not, you know, unreasonable that, uh, that it's the first one that you're seeing. No, at but all. yeah, I thought uh, I thought it was really good. It sort of uh, it has this like rapid modernization of like Chinese urban environments and and like business growth and whatnot. And I think uh, it has a really interesting commentary on the sort of like inevitable difficulties that people have connecting in this like, you know, rapidly evolving uh, world. I think, you know, in many ways it's similar to like Antonioni's like films around, you know, the sort of post-World War, post-war like economic boom is sort of like a similar thing where like technology and, and modernization is rapidly growing and people just aren't very good at dealing with that. Now, excuse my ignorance. I thought it was some sort of gangster film as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, okay. that's what's really interesting about it is it simultaneously subverts, you know, a bunch of gangster norms, takes place over about 10 years, and also has some strange sort of mystical elements that mm-hmm. are pretty, I think it's pretty intriguing. it's longer than 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's like closer to 20 or something, isn't it? Really? You also had your staff pick quite recently. It was that's uh, true, yeah. eight and a half. Eight and a half. Speaking of <laughs> men trying to resolve their troubles <laughs> as horrible people, that's definitely in cool. the canon. I don't know. It's a you know it's a metatextual analysis of what it's like to be a filmmaker and the and the troubles and the tribulations of making films and making art and being a person and trying to seek authenticity in a world that uh, perpetually negates the possibility of ever finding it. Can we? Can I say? Can we talk about Sorry to Bother You? And how yeah, no, no. It's, uh, it's on the list. It's on the list. I've. Uh... So sorry to bother you. We showed not only for its belated run, but also we brought it back for Customer Appreciation Day on the same day as Won't You Be My Neighbour. Directorial debut from Boots Radio, is yes. that right? We did sort of touch on it briefly as well, but it was one of the first big films for Lakeith Stanfield, who's amazing, but you also probably recognise him from Get Out as uh, the uh, the first gentleman that is inhabited. Sorry to bother you is hilarious from start to finish. Truly one of the most inventive, creative and unique films I've seen in a long time. Such a strong vision from, you know, a, a first-time filmmaker, but what a wild, what a wild ride it is. Yeah. It also has uh, Stephen Jung in it. Yes, yes. Uh, from Burning. Burning yes, yeah. as well, yeah. And if you haven't, if uh, this, I realize, if you haven't even heard of the film, uh, it's about a African-American man who gets a job at a call center after being down on his luck and realizes that he has a knack for selling things over the phone because he has an amazing white voice. That's right. Which is David Cross's voice. Race is really a plot device. Yeah. If anything, um, and uh, and and really what it is, it's, a, it's an absurdist sci-fi film um, that is uh, kind of simultaneously a critique and analysis of capitalism. It's the way in which it shapes and manipulates our desire to succeed. So it makes a point of of putting a price yeah. tag on on the values of its protagonists. Like that's yeah. that's really the the sort of the main thrust of the film. That's true, and like how far are you willing to go to make it kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Are you willing to betray yeah. yourself, your values, your loved ones? Yeah. If you if you know you can succeed, and and oftentimes it's the question is, oh, I don't know if I can succeed, but it's very clear that he is going to be great at this. So it's it's simply a matter of him kind of deciding between these two paths. Yeah. 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 Also, lots of people have issue, take issue with the ending of Sorry to Bother You. And I think if you'd been watching that film the whole time, I don't see how you could really find it that jarring or out of line with everything that's come before. Um, Essentially, it turns into a completely nonsensical, uh, unrealistic... That was a good description. Yeah, thing. 
Uh, but <laughs> the movie has had this kind of this thread, this little vein in it the whole time, and then the vein just kind of pops at the end in, the, mm-hmm. in what I think is a great great climax to that film. I, I thought it was brilliant. I like, felt I uh, it. similarly about Blind Spying as yeah. well, which was uh, the uh, uh, Davy Diggs is the uh, is the one of the one of two central. I guess he's the central character in it. But that was another one, and he, he, he's so uh, he's uh, in a group called Clipping, which is kind of like an alternative uh, hip hop outfit. But there is an element of uh, uh, of poetry as opposed to hip hop lyricism in how he delivers these prose, and the film is very much uh, you know taking it's just a film version of his music basically, and he'll deliver these amazing summations of of, of what's been happening. It ends very much how it starts. You kind of feel that there's going to be a telling climax to it, whereas there's going to be a lesson learned, but actually there isn't really. And it's just, a, yeah, just a really unusual experience. Um, again, just very inventive, very experimental. And it's a shame we didn't show it more, more than yeah. we did, actually. It's but. exciting. It's exciting times, all these new voices. Yeah. From underrepresented peoples. But yeah, blind spotting, sorry to bother you. Uh, both really, really fantastic films from last year. That with me now is uh, is Dave Clark, who is the curator of Band in Alberta, which is uh, in this month is going to be three films in. Dave also is the uh, the monthly uh, Garno Ghostlight Tour yeah. guide. Ghostlight Tour. I tell you, whenever they put that up on Facebook, there's like lots of people saying, "Oh, so and so, you'd be interested in that." Right. And then five minutes later on the feed. It basically says, "Oh, it's sold out." <laughs> it's a limit limited to twenty, isn't it? Twenty. It's yeah. only what five bucks or something. Yeah. And it everyone sells out like within like, twenty minutes. It's a good little thing that you do. You know, it's great. It's and I'm thing. I'm very proud to be part of that as well. I you like know, I like I'm, being the presence in the booth. I'm going to say yeah. that uh, you do contribute a lot to that because, of course, people don't usually get to go and visit film projection booths. We started off in April with uh, with Tom Jones. That was the first one. And I Tom Jones. Uh, subsequently found out that that is in fact where Tom Jones, the musician, took his name from. Oh, I did not know that. I did, is what's his real name? That's a the next thing I'm going to have to find out unless you know Arthur Pennis no Arthur Pennis I don't know <laughs> that's a Monty Python joke I'm keeping that in uh, his name is Four Candles um, and uh, then in May, uh, last month we had Women in Love uh, from 1969 and then uh, this is probably uh, I'd argue the uh, the biggest one so far in terms yeah. of it's kind of like cinematic lineage. We got the wild one. Yeah. Uh, Laszlo Benedict from yeah. 1954. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, 54. Okay. This so yeah, wild one was banned in Alberta. It was the only Canadian province to ban it. Okay. Uh, other provinces voiced issues with it because it's 54, and it's right at the beginning of this big social change. Right. You've got the post-war in quotes de-Christianization of societies all over the world. I right. don't know yeah. if that's a real thing or not, but I think it is. Uh, it's not the 60s yet. So this is uh, sort of post-war, folks coming home, Alberta booming like crazy, because in 47 you got the oil, mm-hmm. right? So you've got about you've got a few hundred thousand people plopping down in Alberta from the States, from yeah. all over the world uh, in that period of time, and bringing their wild ways, their wicked ways. You've also, I think most importantly in this, in terms of censorship, now I come back to my thesis, uh, Canada in the 50s and 60s had more paid film censors, full-time full censors, than any non-totalitarian country in the Western world. This is a free con- con- confederation, right? Uh, film censorship didn't fall under the criminal code of Canada. Mm. 
which usually things do fall under federal or national criminal codes. But in this case, each province had the right just to kind of go, we're going to put it under licensing. We're going to put it under the amusements board. And here it was uh, under the uh, social credit party influenced, basically the provincial secretary's office. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got the Alberta Amusements Act, which banned anything on Sundays for a long time. Things that were banned or censored here up until about 1946-47 were really for morality reasons. And there was the sort of things that were banned and censored elsewhere, right? Oh, there's a married couple in the same bed. There's, right, you yeah. know, Edward G. Robinson, crime does pay. You know, that's bad too. But something massive happened here which didn't really happen anywhere else in 46. They appointed this uh, guy... Colonel Hook was his name. I don't know his first name. R.J. Hook. He's the guy who lost his job over the Tom Jones. Right. Yeah. Fiasco. Okay. Because that got very messy. But this is like 10 years, a bit, a bit earlier than that. So they, there was a what they would you would call a, a name for it back in that day. I found that this the other day. The Supreme State Conspiracy. Wow. And Premier Ernest Manning, who was Canada's youngest premier at the time, came in in the early 40s. Uh was obsessed with communism. He was he was a evangelical preacher, had had a show called The Back to the Bible Hour, which still exists. Right. Okay. Still continues today. I was just watching Death of Stalin last night. Actually. Yes. <laughs> There's the context for yeah, it. Right? Yeah, right. So the uh, you go uh, and a good quote about social credit party uh, this is from a social credit premier of BC is social credit is conservative policy without the nuisance of democracy I suppose the wild one probably falls into perhaps what you might consider a more atypical reason for being banned which is that it incites rebellion yeah, it's, it's, it's a dangerous film yeah. to, to the social order, as it would have been seen at the time. Yeah. yeah, and it was also banned in the UK for 13 years as well, which yeah. I was surprised at. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and it was only released, I think, yeah, 13 years, and then it was only released in, in 67 in the UK with an yeah, X certificate. Surprised to read that too, because which you're kind of like, it seems a bit behind the eight ball. A little bit, uh, yeah. But the uh, the concept, the Wild One's an interesting one, because you do have it, it's camp now. Mm-hmm. But that's not the intention of the film, right? No, I mean, it's, it's certainly... Those, those sorts of things make more sense when you watch films like Custom Car Commandos, the, the Kenneth Anger, who sort of deliberately yeah. lampoons that, you know, boys in leather. And Scorpio, right, that and, whole uh, you know, the gangs. Yeah, and that moves into Warhol, too. Exactly, too, exactly. He's doing you know, that not, so not it's, much longer after. Not shocking. Not particularly shocking. Yeah, this idea of the recognised moral code. And this is idea of being influenced by statist thought... Now, you have to bear in mind, too, that uh, the Wild Wild remained banned here for a long time. So the movie itself, when it was banned, people didn't really respond to it. When Tom Jones was banned, people like that film got nominated for like a dozen mm. Oscars, and it's based on the first novel in English literature. But with Wild One, people were like, yeah, it does sound a bit racy and a bit rough. I mean, it's interesting to suppress uh, to suppress art in that way. Also, but it, th- yeah. there's something about creating that tension and that dichotomy where you have things that you're not supposed to see, which also counterproductively generates an interest in it as well. So, well, we do know that people made dupes of the Wild Run into 16 mil, and it was shown privately here. Yeah, there were private film clubs that would show films that were uh, supposedly banned in Alberta. Mm-hmm. 
you know, scurrilous Frank Sinatra films. Mm. There's a good film that I am hoping we can show as part of this series called God's Little Acre. Right, okay. Which, yeah. is, uh, which was banned outright here uh, for making fun of Christians, for making fun of evangelical Christians. Uh, Clockwork Orange, is that going to be the last in this installment of yeah, Battle Alberta? Yeah, or are you, promote, are you, gonna, are you gonna put this through again? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think it would be nice to. Uh, we have a few. I'm, there are there are a few less well-known films mm-hmm. that have been hard to get out of. But we've, I think we've tracked down some versions of them. Uh, I'm really interested in showing some of the NFB shorts, National Film Board shorts that were yeah, banned absolutely, in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, several of which were produced by. Sydney Doctor Who Newman from Montreal. That's right, yeah. Uh, which is the Carry On Canada series. Dave, thank you very much for coming in again. June fifteenth, nine thirty. Arrive early and hear more on the history of uh, of Band Alberta. And as I say, we've just got one more in the series. That'll be five. Yeah. And it's been five fantastic films. So I hope that you yeah. uh, uh, put it through, uh, propose it again. And if we can get down to the nitty gritty and have it some. It amuses those. me that all the films that were banned in Alberta are pretty good films. Yes, that doesn't actually. It amuses me. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. No. No. But, uh, excellent. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Felicia. I really like Choplifters. Okay. I saw it at IFE, but Me we... too. I see lots of nodding. It's a great flick. Okay. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. Oh, okay. That's no, great. Okay. You guys should go see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen too many of Correa's other films, but it, it wasn't a, a fast-paced, like a whole bunch was happening kind of movie. It was very much focusing on this this makeshift family of people who are and aren't related to each other, um, who may not necessarily be good people, but are still trying in their own way. Mm-hmm. And it was just the way that he approached like these different people and their different relationships. It was, it was just a really beautiful film. Also, people who seem who are alienated from society, and then you get you get to see how they live their lives, kind of in comparison with normal people, and realize like how how much you don't see from people who might be on the fringes of society or living outside the norms of our you know kind of nine to five. Mm-hmm. everyday life and I think that's what Coriata because I have seen a lot of his films is he's able to take like the simplest things about people and bring out pure love and appreciation and show the joy of the simplest things in life Coriata's uh, his showman geiki films little, little technical Whoa. term for <laughs> Japanese family dramas uh, his like family dramas are always super interesting and I think there's been a progression over the course of his career where his earlier family dramas are more like films like Still Walking depict very traditional Japanese families and the characters in those films are very cruel to each other. And I think Shoplifters is sort of the, the end point where families are so distorted from the tradition and yet they're closer together, they're, they're more connected to one another. And so I think he has a very interesting commentary on what a family is in Japan and how that should work versus how it does work. Mm-hmm. And, Typical and social structures kind of falling apart yeah. a bit. Yeah. Yeah, it struck me in a way. I've the last few he's made after the storm and uh, our little sister was our one. little sister. That's my yeah, personal favorite. Which I mean, they're both beautiful, but this one kind of kind of brings it together in a way that the other the other few really really haven't for me yet. But yeah, this one, I mean, was 
The other ones, like our little sister was, they're all related by blood and it was kind of getting to know each other. And this was, they're making their own family uh, in a way that means something to them that might not, you know, mean something to other people or mm-hmm. even represent what other people think family is. Yeah. Um, and the, the lengths they're willing to go f- for for this family yeah. is also... Like yeah. telling. It's basically fast and furious, you know, family, <laughs> family, family is most family important. Family is first, <laughs> always. They're, they're ride or die. Yeah. Yeah. Which ones did you want to, oh, High Life we should definitely yeah. talk about. Yeah, sure. Uh, certainly, very, and I know you have seen it, you've seen it twice now, Will. Correct, yeah. Uh, now, this was going to be part of a, of a Claire Denny uh, retrospective, which has now changed, hopefully to be rescheduled for, later, for a later date, but we are showing High Life still, which is awesome. Uh, so what do you think? It's, uh, it's good. Um, <laughs> okay. I think, yeah, that's all. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, one of the films we joked about talking about was uh, Azama. And I think Lucrecia Martel, who directed that, her debut feature, La Cienaga, is, uh, is similar to a lot of Denise's earlier work, I think, in that they are both vested in this phenomenological kind of like cinematic engagement that privileges like a, a new mode of viewing and seeing things, which I think is, is super interesting. Denise Beautrevai is sort of her most maybe renowned work and I think she's very interested in depicting bodies in ways that haven't really been depicted on screen before, in ways that abstract the body but also sort of bring you closer to it in a very strange way. And I think High Life is sort of a continuation on that, but now it's just in space. It's kind of like Trouble Every Day in space, basically. That's what, that's what I, I okay. was thinking. Like, this is, you know, that Trouble Every Day was a genre piece by Claire Denis. And yeah. so, you know, it kind of seems like the same kind of thing. Like, it's yeah. Claire Denis, but yeah. in space. It's got a, it's got a plot. It's a, yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of. It does, like, Claire Denis does seem like she's a big fan of, like, taking genres and being like, all right, I'm going to not do any of this. Right. Like, yeah. Beautrevai is kind of like a war film or like sure. a military film. Trouble Every Day is like a vampire film, not really. Mm-hmm. High Life is like a sci-fi film, not really. She just, it's like a, she uses genre conventions to subvert everything that she wants to. She's, mm-hmm. yeah. She's uh, so as I care. understand it, uh, part of the reason why we're, we're unable to, to uh, screen the retrospective in June is because Beautrevai is in the process of being um, restored. restored. I, think, I think there's a restoration coming next. And I'm not sure what the story is with Trouble Every Day, but those were two of the ones that we wanted to show, again, of the... Uh, maybe with the exception of 35 Shots of Rum those two films as well uh, are the ones you're going to be most familiar with um, High Life also though speaking of um, you know actors that are sort of improving with age uh, Rob Pattinson yeah. has shed that uh, that tween persona mm-hmm. and started doing these sort of really fantastic he's amazing in um, uh, what was the, uh, good, the time? Yeah. good time yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. incredible soundtrack as well that was a really 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 interesting oh, film it's funny though because um, um, I was watching uh, a, an interview with Denise and she was talking about how she really loved the the Twilight series <laughs> and, and thought like Kristen and Robert were doing like a great work as well, like young actors. Yeah. And now Kristen Stewart is like yeah. Oliver Sayers' like news or something. Yeah, so it's funny crazy. how they've both kind of gone into the. I guess it's probably unfair to. Uh, to criticise them for the work they did when they were teenagers. <laughs> I actually thought you were going to say, actually, I watched Twilight the other day and I thought he was great. <laughs> yeah, that didn't happen. So, like, I, I mean, I always felt like Trouble Every Day has crossover into mainstream appeal. Like, do you feel that this high life is does or is it still, like, very 
I don't know. I high think, art. <laughs> high, high art. I don't know. Art. I think it uh, it sort of definitely straddles that line. And I think Denis has a tendency to make films that are like super high art and then more conventional. Like 35 Shots of Rum is right. a nicer one versus Trouble Every Day, which is a little, a little extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think if you're willing to go into it without expecting it to be a sci-fi fun romp in space, then you might, uh, you'll, be, you'll get more out of it, I think. Right. Yeah. Speaking of high art, the beach bum, Nick. Oh, hey. yes. <laughs> the highest art. Can the trash highest... be art is really the question. That is it. Well, I guess, have you seen Trash Humpers? I have not seen I have not seen that Okay. Are there anyone you've seen? No, I have. Oh, I, what, what was it? The Spring Breakers? Spring Breakers, yeah. yeah. You know, I, the, the one line that I keep saying that really stuck with me in the film is he calls himself an anti-neurotic and he believes that the universe is conspiring to make him happy. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's like a really neat idea. And obviously he does deplorable things in the film. And like sometimes you're horrified and disgusted. But the whole time he's happy and he's living his yeah. life. And even at the end, you know, I'm not going to give it. It's not a big spoiler, but, you know stuff happens and he's still just chilling like he's fine with it either way you know? he's not allowed to be a troubled artist yeah exactly yeah, like he just, doesn't allow anything to kind of get him down in a way that's almost impressive where he's cursed to have a to coast through life mm-hmm. and I think that there, there's, a, there's some really wonderfully kind of like nihilistic elements to it yeah. as well as there always are with uh, yeah. Harmony Korean films it's Which like you're watching is, I also a tornado. thought Spring Breakers had an excellent kind of like yeah it was balance beautiful. between like being horrific and like kind of like oh yeah. this is exciting uh, just again I got a little heady but it's hilarious and um, yes it it's an experience it is an experience and I think even if you're mildly curious even if you hate it I think it's definitely like something you should try yeah if you're if you're looking to dip your toe in I I would I would jump in because it it is it is a wild ride either way absolutely it's great advice Um, (laughs) so uh, we are coming up to uh, to an hour so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to wrap it up Um, there's lots of things very quickly is there anything that we um, are showing that we definitely should talk about that we haven't got around to Um, I just wanted to Long Day's Junior tonight Long Day's Junior okay right that's a recent uh, addition to the calendar I watched uh, by Gunn's debut Kylie Blues which is a very interesting film it sort of is like Wong Kar Wai plus Tarkovsky in a weird way that sort of I guess he was inspired by Stalker really? that was what made him become a filmmaker it's interesting to hear because he definitely has like a certain similar sensibility Uh, he's super interested in characters just changing and it's I don't know it's super interesting he has very gorgeous long takes that are now famous so Mm -hmm. yeah it's gonna it's gonna be great Chef we're showing it for every, I, every <laughs> any excuse for food. What it is for me is it's, it's a very strange thing, but it's a, it for me it is a very comforting film. Um, and it's I wa- it's about I, food. Yeah, but I don't even <laughs> I don't even like a lot of the food in it. No. Is, I'll say, but like there's just something about the family relationship in that movie, and just it's kind of so lighthearted without really the conflict. This minute this this makes it sound it's a very light breezy film, but mm-hmm. whenever I'm feeling down or bad, I, if I watch that movie, it instantly cheers me up, and it's just it's really really fun cute movie it is not a film without problems but i will uh, admit that i have seen it twice yeah see it's like i've i've so many times i've sat down and be like man i want to watch a movie what should i watch and i still haven't figured out how to make a cubano either yeah really. i also just want to highlight that uh the film uh i i don't want to 
bungle the, there's like a Cree word, Nipawistamasawin. Uh, what day are you looking at? Um, we will at? stand up. This is June 1st. So this is a documentary about the Colton Bushi trial that uh, recently won at the Hot Docs Film Festival. Mm -hmm. by, I think it won like the big prize there. And it's directed by a local filmmaker, Tasha Hubbard, um, NFP produced film. And I, Tasha Hubbard will be in attendance. So I think that's probably worth checking out as well. I've heard great things about it. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, that is all we've got time for. So uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Talisha. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, William. Thank you, Owen. And, uh, thanks, thanks, Owen. Thanks. Right. And uh, yeah, so be, uh, come to Metro. Uh, go to metrocinema.org to find out more details about all the things we talked about. And we'll see you in the lobby. <laughs> <laughs>